This is an ABC podcast. Hey, it's Natasha Mitchell. Welcome to Science Friction. This week I'm feeling some cosmic vertigo. Now, that is the name of one of our sister science podcasts here at the ABC. Cosmic Vertigo's new season has just landed and it stars two deadly young Indigenous scientists as hosts. Their stars shine real bright, I've got to tell you. Corey Tutt is CEO and founder of the charity called Deadly Science, which gets science books and telescopes and a whole lot more into remote and regional schools, especially into the hands of of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. Astrophysicist Carly Noon is inaugural astronomy ambassador at the Sydney Observatory. She's doing her PhD and she was the first Indigenous woman in Australia to graduate with a double degree in maths and physics. But I'm going to let them tell you more in this episode where they're smashing barriers and sharing some of their own science journey alongside an astro maybe astronomical hero of theirs. Hello from the children of planet Earth. Surrounding me as I grew up was just nature. It was fields of wheat and canola and farms with cows and sheep and and the seasons changed and the, the river flooded and the leaves changed on the trees and the stars came out at night and the moon came up and I just noticed all of that because I was immersed in it and it's that kind of feeling that you're part of everything that, that I loved and it wasn't just astronomy that I fell in love with, it was the weather you know, meteorology and and the clouds, the flooding and the plants and everything. So I could have really gone into any kind of science, I think, from that start in life. So I think it's really important for kids to understand the world and that we're just part of nature. When was the last time you saw something so ridiculously amazing, it made you want to tell everyone about it? That's how Corey and I feel about science. And we know we're not alone. But the truth is, not everyone gets the opportunity to get into science like we have. And this needs to change. Yama, I'm Gamilaroi astronomer Carly Noon. And I'm deadly Gamilaroi scientist Corey Tutt. And this is Cosmic Vertigo. This show takes a down-to-earth and deadly look at all the sparkly. And the not-so-sparkly. Stuff in the sky. Today, how to get people to fall in love and also to stay in love with STEM. So STEM, that stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Maths and Medicine. And as you heard at the top, we've got a super special friend of the show coming along for the ride. I'm going to start off with a question for you. When was your earliest memory of 
STEM, science. Oh, earliest memory. Well, look, it was very early. It was maybe like year two or something. And I remember learning about the solar system and I wasn't really that blown away by it. Like, <laughs> I Child think genius, all... <laughs> she knew it all. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I didn't know any of it, but I guess it just wasn't really that exciting. You know, I'm kind of jealous of these people who just knew that they wanted to be in astronomy from the age of like three. Whereas, like, no, that wasn't it for me. I, like, I was exposed to it, but, like, I wasn't that impressed. (laughs) But what did capture my imagination and attention was more about our natural world that we could see, like, immediately around us. I remember being really, really young, maybe about seven, and I was just up one night, couldn't go to sleep, and there was a lightning storm outside of my house. Like, open my window and there's just lightning going on everywhere. And that absolutely amazed me, watching this lightning go on and on. And it was like it was dancing. Like, I just found it so beautiful and so captivating. And I just wanted to understand it. I wanted to know more about it. A few years later, I would, like, run outside and dance in the rain if it ever started raining. I don't know. I just had this fascination with nature and the weather that we were experiencing at the time. And I guess, you know, I grew up in drought as well. So water and rain meant so much to us. So yeah, that was kind of my first experience of falling in love with STEM, I will say. A much more exciting time than learning about it in the classroom for me. What about yourself? When was your first experience with falling in love with STEM? It's actually really early on. I would have been about four years old. We used to live next to a park and it had water dragons, it had red-bellied black snakes in it. I remember this one particular time as a four-year-old and I found a blue-tongued lizard. And this blue-tongued lizard was so fascinating because it's flashing its blue tongue at me. That was probably the moment where I really loved all things reptiles because for you know years after that I would walk through that park or I would go and walk through the bush and I'd look for animals like that and you know this is sort of where it started and I remember the first book I read which was Reptiles in Colour by Harold Cogger and that was from 1982 and I got that in about 1998 and that was from my pop who's from Wildwood, he's a Millerory brother. And he never really knew how to read, but then, you know, he knew the importance of letting me read. So teaching me how to read was so Mm. important for my life because that book actually changed my whole outlook because not only did I read about the deadly blue tongue lizards or the romantic shinglebacks with this built-in GPS and they love each other for life, it was something that opened up a light bulb for me. And that really, for me, is how we most of us get into science when you're looking at the sky and you're seeing these big bolts of lightning and this rain coming from the sky and for me I get the same now when I look at the stars because I I often wonder what's out there and I want to learn more. That's so beautiful. I had a very similar experience in that so much of my journey was thanks to my elders. I had a very similar experience in that an elder from our community would come over and she would sit with me and she would 
do maths. Like she would do maths with me and we would have really fun maths games. And, you know, we had these little jokes. I had like this one times table that I could never remember. It was six times seven. And now I remember it so well because... I had so much trouble remembering it in the past. The answer is 42. It is like cemented into my brain now just because, you know, we would spend time laughing at that I couldn't remember it after all this time or, you know, it was just so silly. But, you know, those really good memories of just laughing while learning, I think really helped me embrace something like maths, you know, this pretty stereotypical, dry, difficult subject, whereas I just had good feelings with it. You know, it made me think of family. It made me think of good times and being supported, I guess. It it goes to show that, you know, from any age, science is all around us and Mm. you don't necessarily have to be Albert Einstein to find a love of science and culture. And when we speak about our culture, you know, it is something that's really important to us. But those lessons from the land, the blue tongue lizards, the thunderstorms, the lessons from the elders, they still live with us and they kind of like tattoo our minds and, you know, give us passion and purpose. I think with history and, um, you know, for non-Indigenous listeners, I think that we should embrace that we come from the country that invented bread and whose people were the first astronomers that we know of, you know. That is something to be really proud of. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're still continuing that culture. We're still waving that flag, all the many flags of our different nations. And it also shows us there's so many different ways to look at the world, right? Like what was happening in the classroom for me was not exciting and was not capturing my imagination. You know, I was learning about Pluto, which is super cool. But yeah, like it really took me to experience these things outside of the classroom, experience it with family and experience it just independently by myself and play with it by myself to be able to actually see the beauty that is in our world and our universe, even in something as crazy as maths. Look, I think if I didn't have my auntie come and sit with me for all those times supporting me through my learning in maths, I don't think I'd be here today. Like when I first was exposed to physics, so we're jumping forward a few years now. I'm about 19 years old. I've finished school. I'm kind of starting in uni, don't really know what I want to do. And I was exposed to physics for the very first time at 19 years old. And it was through a book called A Brief History of Time. Now, this is an incredible book. It was written by the late Stephen Hawking. R.I.P. Stephen Hawking. Uh, Again, another the BFF of the show. Now, this book blew my mind. Like, we know stuff about space. We know stuff about the furthest reaches of the universe. We know stuff about the earliest time, you know, the point where time came into existence. There's all this really incredible stuff out there that we know little bits and pieces about. And it just made me so excited that 
I could learn about that. You know, I could go into a degree or pick up a course online or watch some YouTube videos and learn about the state of our universe. And I found that so incredible. And if I didn't have the maths behind me, if I didn't feel confident in the maths that I knew was going to be required to learn all this stuff, there's no way I would have had the confidence. There's no way I would have had the audacity to go and pick up a science degree, you know, in physics. So getting into STEM is one thing, but sticking around, that's the hardest part. Yeah, because when we talk about science, we're usually talking about one very specific type of science. That's the Western model that we're, you know, all pretty familiar with, which, you know, don't get me wrong, is great and has given us a lot but also comes with a little bit of baggage. Yeah, like the assumption of what a scientist is and who can do science. Exactly, which makes it harder for some people, you know, women, people of colour, to get even their foot in the door. It's not that they can't, it's just harder for these people. So we're going to keep yarning about getting into science, staying in science, and how to get better gender and ethnic representation in the people we get into science. And to join us in this conversation, we would like to introduce a very, very special friend of the show, Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith. Where do we begin? Astrophysicist, author, presenter, equality and diversity advocate, she has researched the birth and death of stars, cosmic magnetic fields and supermassive black holes. She's a stellar science communicator and just all-around excellent human. Let's go. And I hope you don't mind. We have been calling you LHS. We are officially anointed you the best friend of the show. Um, oh, and, and this is lovely. Thank you this, so much. This is much. purely for our street cred in the <laughs> cosmic world. Um, but no, we're really happy to have you on today. Well, you know, LHS, other people do call me LHS, so you you can definitely use that one. Awesome. Thank you so much. So Carly and I have just been talking about how we got into science, and I'm going to ask you that question. So as a kid, how did you fall in love with the stars and science and all things STEM? Well, I lived in a small village when I was a kid. So I grew up in England and we're about 60 k's from London in a really small community, just a couple of hundred people. And surrounding me as I grew up was just nature. You know, you really felt as a kid, you're part of that landscape. As a kid, you know, you don't really think about what you want to do as a grown-up. I think sometimes you have some harebrained ideas and, you know, you might have some sort of stereotypical jobs that you might want to do, like train driver or police officer or something. But when you really get down and think about it, most kids don't know scientists. Most kids don't get to meet scientists. I certainly didn't. And my experience of looking at the stars was just that it was wonderful and it was beautiful and it was something everyone could do. But not many people did. I, my friends used to take the mick when I was a teenager. Just why are you always looking at the stars? It's like, well, there's <laughs> not much going on down here. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. And I couldn't believe they didn't want to look at the stars. But, mm. you know, how do you get from that to being a scientist? Well, I joined my local astronomical society when I was 12. And the guys down there, and they mostly were guys, were about a million years old. And what does a 12, 13 year old girl have to do with a 60, 70 year old man? But 
we were friends and they welcomed me with open arms and helped me learn more about astronomy and lent me their telescopes and got to know more about the planets and the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter and the trapezium cluster in the Orion Nebula, which is a bunch of hot blue stars that are forming out of trillions of tons of gas. And it was just incredible to see this whole new world kind of open up. And the society had professional astronomers come and visit and give talks occasionally. And that was just incredible. I remember one day a guy from Cambridge University came and it just seemed like the most exotic thing you could ever imagine, stuff you'd see on TV, you know, Cambridge University professor. Wow. And this guy had given up his evening and come up on the train to our little town and and gave up his time. And that's what I and you guys love doing now because you're giving back, you're giving back to that circle of learning and inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really comes back to what Corey was saying in that you can't be what you can't see. And from the sounds of it, you were able to get access to the world of astronomy quite young, you know, 12. I was not looking at the stars when I was 12. (laughs) That's for sure. We won't ask what you were doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, look, that was was my wild time. (laughs) We won't go. We'll skip that part of my journey. (laughs) But I love that about you. You know, you fully acknowledge that in order to get into this world, into space, you need access to it. You know, the things you do with the Women in STEM ambassadorship and getting young girls into STEM and science, it's so important because, you know, our people are the first scientists that we know of, you know, Mm. the first civilization to use STEM and science. But some of the the best, like, discoveries in the world have been made by women. And we're working really hard to make STEM equal and probably get rid of some of this misogyny that has been part of society for a really long time. How do you think that we continue to grow? Because although we are making some really strong strides, from a personal point of view, I think that we need to do a little bit more. Yeah, it's a societal problem and we can all help in our individual areas of influence, I guess, and every bit counts, it really does. But until the structural problems are addressed, and that is misogynistic or cultural biases that are sort of threaded through the society are removed, then, you know, we're not going to make a huge difference because if we only validate people who have trodden a particular path and whatever background they happen to be from, they have trodden that path that is the traditional one that has been rewarded over the last 200 years, say, then that is not true diversity and inclusion. If we just reward people who have gone to good schools, in quotes, and have achieved high exam results and trodden the path that everyone else does, then we are not truly inclusive. So we have to consider a much broader range of skills and experiences and look outside the box. And we're just not doing that at the moment. Yeah, and it's funny that women and people from diverse cultural or ethnic backgrounds, you know, that they are considered to be outside the box. I know. And there's a box. Why is there a box? <laughs> yeah. Why is there a box and Smash why is it a box, white male? Guys. <laughs> Smash the box. Let's just start a hashtag. Yeah. Smash um, that box. <laughs> just, it's just such a ridiculous situation we're all in. We're kind of constrained, but then we're constraining ourselves as soon as we get into the system. Yeah. It's 
it's self-preservation. So people like to, even though they don't agree with the system, they like to uphold it and gatekeep you to maintain their position in society because they think they've worked hard. So it's their rightful position where it's like, well, a lot of people work hard, but there is a lot of stuff we need to do to make sure that everyone's unique talents and capabilities are incorporated and different outlooks on life are incorporated, especially, you know, First Nations people who have that huge, huge body of wisdom. Mm. It makes us stronger, doesn't it? Like it makes us stronger as an industry to have different diverse knowledges and it makes us a little bit smarter because we're taking the perspectives from all people and then coming up with evidence-based fact. And I think that makes us a lot smarter as humans. And hopefully we can look after our planet a little bit better and look after our skies a little bit better as well. Yeah. Everything I hope in the next 20, 30 years will turn to sustainability. If we don't, we're going to be absolutely screwed. Absolutely screwed. The whole of humanity will just be, you know, I'm reading a book about the climate crisis at the moment. It's just, uh, it's hard to overstate the problem we're currently facing. And if we don't take the wisdom of First Nations people, and especially with regard to land management, water, sky, resource management, food, everything, all of that knowledge is phenomenal. And, um, you know, it's just terribly tragic to see what we're doing currently to our world. Yeah, and because we're not just doing it to our world, right? We're doing it to each other. We're really, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about you and me and Corey, but like the world as a collective, this is to the point of self-destruction now. It is, um, it is. Yeah, we're harming ourselves and we're harming each other. And one thing that I absolutely love from my community and, you know, Indigenous communities all over is this idea that we're all valuable and we all fit in somewhere. You know, we all have a place and we're all important. We all have our good attributes that we can contribute to our world. And I think, you know, we have a really divided society at the moment where we have this hierarchy, right? We have that box that's on that pedestal and then everyone else is kind of trying to survive under that pedestal. And I think there's so many lessons that we can take from not just Indigenous peoples, but, you know, from other cultures all around the world. But that one in particular, respecting ourselves, respecting our peers, our neighbours, it could really take us to a completely different reality than the one we're sadly living in at the moment. I think the wonderful perspective that astronomy can give us as well is that intergenerational perspective. And it's, you know, when you look at the stars, you know that you're looking at the same stars that our ancestors looked at 2000 years ago. And even if you go back 5000 years, the stars didn't look that different. 10,000 years, okay, there's slight changes in the constellations. But, you know, all of that time, there was this huge feeling of cultural responsibility as well. And I think looking at the stars and and even space travel, I know, is seen to change people's perspective about the Earth and our place on it. I recently just read The Cosmos by Carl Sagan, which is a very popular book amongst astronomers. But, you know, I'm more of an ecologist than an astronomer or someone that has an interest in space. But actually, as an adult, I've developed quite an interest in space. And I guess it's probably through doing deadly science that I've I've sort of become a much more rounded person in my knowledge base. You know, even as an adult, do you have any role models? 
I do have role models. I mean, you guys are two of them, actually. I'm being quite honest here. Oh, people Lisa, who... stop. I have just transferred Gosh. our ABC budget into your account. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't know about you, Corey. I've made it. This is, yeah. this is it. This is peak for me. <laughs> but seriously, people who give up their time and their knowledge and actually are genuine and honest about who they are as well and what matters to them. So they don't try and fit in some show busy box like, oh, I'm I'm a regular kind of ABC commentator or a regular kind of science communicator, but I'm allowing myself to come into this communication as well. And that's what I really value is that when you're a scientist, you don't have to just become a scientist in the box and you allow that to shape you. You know, like when a cat sits in a jar and it's adorable and it becomes the shape of the jar. But um, (laughs) it's the opposite. You know, you keep your shape and you keep your values and you talk about your values. And that's what's really important because that provides role models for people who don't previously have them. And that creates knowledge and almost awareness amongst other communicators that, okay, there are there are many ways to do this. Yeah. Yourself, myself, we're in these positions where we have access to literally the whole universe. And to be able to share that is incredible. And for people to get access to that, you know, it's so important. And so really focusing on that, making that the important thing and not so much, you know, who you are, how many followers you have, or whatever the <laughs> the metric is that we're going by today. Yeah, metrics can well they can go the same way as the box. Yeah, yes. we're going to smash the metrics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, smash that box. Carly Noon, astrophysicist and the inaugural astronomy ambassador at the Sydney Observatory, with Corey Tutt, founder and CEO of the charity Deadly Science and last year's Young Australian of the Year for New South Wales. And they were talking to astronomer, author and Australia's Women in STEM ambassador, Dr Lisa Harvey-Smith. Check out the new season of the ABC's Cosmic Vertigo podcast with Corey and Carly. Find it wherever you get your podcasts from or the ABC Listen app. I'm Natasha Mitchell. You can find Science Friction at the ABC Listen app too. I'll see you. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.